tonight our topic is why so many denominations, but let's begin with a word of prayer. Oh, loving Father, Lord, we thank you so much for putting it in our hearts and minds to be here tonight. We have a divine appointment with you, and Lord, we are waiting and expecting and hoping that you're going to show up, and that Lord, you are going to impress upon our hearts what you would have us do. And so, Lord, our prayer is that the Holy Spirit is being poured out here tonight. That, Lord, you are sending your angels to minister to us and helping us to choose you and choose life. And, Lord, we just pray that when the night is ended and our meeting is over, that, Lord, we have a greater understanding of your word and that, Lord, you would show us what you would have us do. And we pray and ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Why so many denominations? That's what we want to talk about tonight. Now, how many of you have ever gone out of town and uh, perhaps you've stayed at a hotel and you're staying for the weekend and you're thinking, you know, I want to go visit a church in the local area here. And so you grab the yellow pages and you open it up and you're just struck by the fact that there are so many different brands of Christianity, right? I mean, some people just ask the question, how could there be so many different churches when there's only one Bible? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? I think it's a valid question, and I think that the Bible actually gives us some insight into how this all came about, and we're going to talk about that tonight. And so the question is, how could there be so many different churches when there's only one Bible? Well, many people just take the honest approach and they just say, well, it doesn't really matter what church that you go to. And then there are other people that even go further than that. And they say, well, I don't think that it even really matters what religion you are as long as you have a spiritual emphasis in your life. And I wonder, what is that really saying? I think what that's really saying is all roads lead where? To heaven. That's really what that kind of thinking is saying, isn't it? But I'll just say this to you. The Bible seems to indicate something different. I'm intrigued by what the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5. He said that there is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And then he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10 to say... Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you will speak the same thing, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you will be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Isn't that amazing? That the Apostle Paul's desire for us is that there would be no division among us. That we would be of the same mind and we would be of the same judgment. In fact, that's exactly what Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 when he he said that he was desiring that his believers would all be one just like he and the Father were one. Now, do you think that the Father and the Son are in unity? Oh, you bet you they are. But notice what the apostle Paul says just two verses later, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 
12 and 13. He says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Here, essentially, what Paul is saying is that there are some of you who are clinging to one particular person or one particular view. And he even seems to indicate that there were some people that were clinging to him. There were some that were clinging to Peter when he and Peter were, in fact, in agreement. And and so sometimes we see that there is this division in the church And we really don't even understand why sometimes, right? But I want to tell you something about the church that I think is important, and we don't often think about it. I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. That's going to be page 1363 in your seminar Bible. And I'd like you to notice what it says in verse 14 and 15. Paul said to Timothy, he's saying to us, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the what? The pillar and ground of truth. The purpose of the church is to promote and to proclaim the truth. The church is to be the pillar of truth, right? Jesus said in John 17, verse 17, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so the church was to be at the heart, at the core of it. The purpose of the church is to promote and to proclaim the truth. But we have a problem. You see, there are many people today that believe that truth is relative. Don't they? And there's a term for many of us today that we're called, I don't know if you've ever heard this, you ever heard the term postmodernism? Yeah, most people today are referred to as postmoderns, right? And apparently, most postmoderns believe that truth is relative. But truth isn't relative, is it? You know, in fact, it even goes back further than postmoderns, I think. Go back to the Bible. Go back to the time when Jesus was standing before Pilate. And what did Pilate say to Jesus? What is truth? Right? So if it was just postmoderns, then he was postmodern. Anyway, truth is absolute, isn't it? Truth gives us security. Truth gives us comfort. It gives us peace. And I think that, that there's a reason why people come out to a seminar like this. And that's because we have this sense that truth is absolute and it's in the Bible and we can discover it and we can know the truth, right? And so it gives us security and it gives us comfort. And I believe that we can understand that God's purpose for the church is that we understand the truth that we would be of the same mind and that we would be of the same judgment and we would proclaim the truth to those who are living in confusion in our time. Amen? You'll remember that last night we started looking at these three angel messages. 
And we saw in Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 and 7, we saw that first message that has to go out to the world before Jesus comes. And that message was that the hour of His judgment has come. Right? Not is coming, but it is here. It has arrived. And we are living in that time when the judgment is going on right now in heaven. And if you weren't here last night, then you can get the notes and you can get the CD on that. But we are living in a time, an urgent time in earth's history, aren't we? But tonight I want to talk about that second message. And that second message is that Babylon is fallen. Now... There's also a third angel's message, and we're going to talk about that in the next couple of nights, but I want to talk about that second angel's message of Babylon falling. Now, you'll remember that in the book of Revelation, there are two women that are talked about. And do you remember what a woman symbolizes in Bible prophecy? A church, that's right. Well, let's take a look at these two women. You'll remember in Revelation chapter 12, that there is this pure woman who is clothed with the sun and the moon and the stars. And so we know that this is a pure church, and it's interesting to me that she's clothed with all of the natural beauty of God's creation, the sun and the moon and the stars, right? And this is a pure church that is under persecution. But then when you go to Revelation chapter 17, you see this woman that is named Babylon. Now, remind me again, what does a woman represent? A church. And so if this woman is named Babylon, then this is a church that is named Babylon, right? So we're not talking about that real literal city in the Old Testament, but we're talking about a church named Babylon. And we have to try and figure out why this church is called Babylon. So let's go to Revelation chapter 17, and let's look at this second woman. Revelation 17, that's going to be page 1420 in your seminar Bible. And we're going to start in verse 1. Revelation 17, verse 1 through 6. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. And so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Now, let's talk about this woman here a little bit. First of all, we remember that this woman represents a church, right? And this woman is referred to as a harlot 
who commits fornication with the kings of the earth. So I ask you the question, what kind of church is this? Well, if she's a harlot, then this is an unfaithful church, isn't it? This is a corrupt church. This is a church that has apostatized from the truth. But if she is unfaithful, then who is she unfaithful to? To Jesus Christ, right? Yeah, she's unfaithful to Him. Unfaithful to Christ because she is seeking the favor of the world. She's seeking the favor of the kings of what? Of the earth, that's right, the kings of the earth. Rather than gaining her power and her authority from Christ and from His Word, she is using the civil authority, the kings of the earth, to establish herself. And so she is a compromising church, a church that is willing to be unfaithful to Christ in order to gain the favor of the world. Notice what the Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? And so while this church is seeking to gain the favor of the world, she is compromising with the world, she becomes an enemy of God. And notice something else about this woman. Look back there in Revelation 17. Look at verse 3 again. It says that she is sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast. Do you see that there? She has seven heads and ten horns. And I find it very interesting that this beast has seven heads and ten horns because if you go to Revelation chapter 12 and it talks about the dragon, guess what? Seven heads and ten horns, right? That's very interesting. But you'll remember that the dragon represents who? Satan, but we also know that Satan doesn't work out in the open, does he? That he works through these other instrumentalities. And so I believe that those seven heads represent the powers through whom the dragon has been working, including Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and, and some others. But the point is that this beast in Bible prophecy represents what? Represents a nation, a king, or a power. Right? And so it's interesting that we see here this woman who represents a church sitting on a nation or a power. Right? Now let me ask you a question. If someone is sitting on a horse, who's controlling who? Well, maybe it depends on who it is, right? If it's me, it might be the horse who's in charge. (laughs) But you understand the symbology, don't you? The one who is sitting on the other is usually the one that's in charge, right? And so here we see this church that is in charge of the government or this power. And so it's very interesting that it's the church that controls the state, not the state controlling the church, right? This, what this is depicting is a union between church and state. And the one who is sitting on top is the one that is in control. And so it's the church that is directing and dictating to the civil power what they should do. Here the church is courting the world 
And this church is more concerned about the favor of the world than the favor of Christ who is using the civil power to carry out her interests. Now, I'd like you to notice what it says in a Bible commentary by David Brown, page 593. He says, State and church are precious gifts of God, but the state being desecrated becomes beast-like and the church apostatizing becomes a harlot. What's he saying? He's saying that when the state is controlled by the church, that it becomes beast-like, enforcing religion. But when the church apostatizes, it becomes a harlot. So let's review what we've seen so far here in Revelation 17. The Bible says that this woman is a harlot. And so this is an unfaithful church. And then we see that this church sits on many waters. And you'll remember that in Bible prophecy, water represents people, multitudes, nations, and tongues, right? So this is a universal church. We see that the kings of the earth worship in this church. So this is a very influential church. You ever notice that when the president of the United States goes to church somewhere, that it's always packed? Because people want to be where the influential people are, right? This church also commits fornication with the kings of the earth. And so this is a compromising church. We also see that this woman wears gold, precious stones, and pearls. And so this is representing a very wealthy or a very rich church. And then we see that this woman is drunk with the blood of the saints, which means that this is a persecuting church. And she rides on this beast, which represents a government, a nation. And so this is a political church. And then we see that this church sits on seven hills. We didn't read that one yet. Look with me in uh, Revelation 17. Look at verse 9. It says, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Some translation says the seven hills on which the woman sits. Now, if you just go on the internet and do a quick Google search on the church that sits on seven hills, you will quickly discover that this is none other than the Vatican and the headquarters in Rome. Now, let me talk about some other things that we've already talked about too. You'll remember that we saw that in Daniel chapter 7, that the little horn is the Antichrist, right? We already saw that. We saw in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the lawless one is the Antichrist. We saw in Revelation chapter 13 that the first beast is the Antichrist. And now, here in Revelation 17, we're looking at papal Rome from yet one more perspective. But this time, the focal point is in the way in which this church of Rome has courted the world. Now, this may sound like something new to you, and you can tell me if you've ever heard of this before, but the early church actually referred to Rome as Babylon. Did you know that? Let me show you that in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. Peter says, the church that is at what? 
Babylon, elected together with you, salutes you. Now, I'll just tell you this, that we now know archaeologically that Peter wrote this epistle from Rome. And I'll also tell you that there was never a church in literal Babylon. Right? There was never a church in Babylon. In fact, Babylon was destroyed long before this, and God said that it would never be restored. Right? So this is not talking about literal Babylon. It's talking about spiritual Babylon. And they used that name Babylon as code for Rome because they just wanted to avoid any consequences of pointing that out. Now, if we're going to truly understand why the early church used Babylon as a code name for Rome, then we're going to have to do a little bit of a refresher in our history. And I'd like you to turn with me to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 10. That's going to be page 10 of that seminar Bible. I'd like you to notice what it says here in Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10. The Bible says that Cush begot Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalni, and in the land of Shinar. Now, if you go to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it actually says that Nimrod was a mighty one against the Lord. And I think that's actually a more accurate reading because Cush, his dad, was against the Lord. And now we see that Nimrod is against the Lord as well. And so this is not someone who is on the Lord's side, but this is someone who is trying to take people away from the Lord. In fact, I'd like you to notice what the historian Josephus says about Nimrod. I'll just read it to you. It says, Now it was Nimrod who excited them to such an affront and contempt of God. He was the grandson of Ham, the son of Noah, a bold man and of great strength of hand. He persuaded them not to ascribe it to God as if it were through his means that they were happy, but to believe that it was through their own courage which procured that happiness. He also gradually changed the government into tyranny, seeing no other way of turning men from the fear of God, but to bring them into constant dependence upon his power. And so what we see here is a man who is leading the people and he's pulling them away from God and he's trying to get them to see him as the one who provides for them and gives them their happiness. Notice what it says here in Genesis 11, starting in verse 1. It says, Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down 
and there confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. And so here we see this group of people after the flood that come together and they decide that they want to build a tower that goes all the way up into the heavens so that if God ever decides to flood the earth again, that they can just climb up to the top of the tower and they won't have to worry about that flood. And that they're going to build a name for themselves and they're going to be this great city, right? And God sees what's going on and He says, we've got to put a stop to this. And so He confuses their language. And so now there's a guy up on the top of the tower and he's yelling down that he needs more mortar and they're sending up brick and straw and there's all kinds of confusion and they finally get to the point where they realize they just cannot work together And so they begin to separate and go off to different areas and they group themselves among those who have the same language that they do. But there is this total confusion that is going on. Now, let me ask you a question. Before God confused their language, were these people united? Absolutely they were united, right? But being united is not always good. The Pharisees were pretty united in calling for the crucifixion of Christ, weren't they? The Sanhedrin was united in the stoning of Stephen. The Bible says they ran at him with one accord. How's that for unity? Right? They were united in their purpose. But unity is not always good. Unity is not good unless there is unity with a foundation of truth. Right? Truth is what makes unity good. And sometimes we just get into this environment in Christianity where we think that unity means that we all just agree to disagree. Right? But we need to be concerned about the fact that there are all of these different ideas when it comes to faith and when it comes to the Christian walk. Right? And while we do need to give liberty to others, while we do need to have tolerance of others, we need to be careful that we don't begin to compromise in our minds in the importance of certain truths that God has given us. We can't have unity on things that are contrary to the truth of God's Word. Remember that Jesus said that He did not come to bring peace, but what? A sword. That's right. What was Jesus saying? Was Jesus saying that He was coming to break up the homes? No. But what He was saying is that He would rather have someone stand for the truth and have division than He would have people who were compromising and being united and not following the truth. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Because sometimes the truth causes division, doesn't it? And it's not because God wants it that way, but it's because of the carnal nature of man. 
There are some people that see the truth and follow the truth and live the truth, and there are others that reject the truth, so it always causes division. And the reason that I'm bringing this up now is because it is playing a part in the deception that is happening right now in our very day. Remember that the Bible says that the Antichrist is going to deceive the whole world, right? And so this is going to play out in your life and in mine. And uh, we can see how unity can very quickly turn into a bad thing, right? And we are going to see how when people are united with the wrong purpose, it gets real ugly real quick, doesn't it? And so we need to be careful that we are united in the truth. Now, Babylon comes from the word Babel. I said Babel earlier, or, or Babel. I like Babel because when somebody's confused and, and it doesn't make sense, it's Babel. They're babbling, right? But I think it's actually pronounced Babel. But what that means is confusion by mixing, right? God mixed up their language and there was confusion. They couldn't work together. And I don't know if you know this or not, but the city of Babylon was actually built on the ruins of Babel. Right? And so then the city of Babylon has that same spirit of Babel, and that is that mixing or that confusion. Right? In fact, notice what King Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel 4, verse 30. The king spoke, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Here we see the pride of Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? And we see that Nebuchadnezzar is going to begin to weave in his own man-made religion. In fact, Babylon is based on a man-made system of religion. And let me show you that. You remember in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had that vision of that image with the different metals, right? And Daniel came and interpreted that for him. There was this statue with the head of gold, the arms and chest of silver, the belly and thighs of brass or bronze, legs of iron, and feet of iron and clay. And God showed Nebuchadnezzar that that was going to be four world ruling empires. Now, when, when Nebuchadnezzar heard that that head of gold was him, he probably really liked that, right? But then he heard that his kingdom wasn't going to rule forever. And he didn't like that at all. And so what he did is he had a statue made of this image that he had seen, but there was one major difference in his version. Do you remember what that was? That's right. It was made out of solid gold. And so that was Nebuchadnezzar's way of weaving in this man-made religion of saying, no, my kingdom's going to last forever, right? And that just continued on from Babylon all throughout history. And Babylon represents this man-made system of religion in which confusion necessarily follows. And how does it follow? Well, let me answer a question for you. And that question is, what is in Babylon's cup? 
You remember in Revelation 17 that we just saw that woman named Babylon who had a cup full of abominations and the nations were drunk with the wine of the wrath of her fornication. So the question then is, what is this wine that is in Babylon's cup? Now, it's very interesting that Jesus said to us and His disciples in Matthew 9, 17, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins. Now, let me explain to you what Jesus was saying here. First of all, you realize that the Bible talks about two different kinds of wine. It talks about the new wine and the old wine. Right? And the new wine is wine that has just been processed and made directly from the grape. And so when it's brand new, it's grape juice. Right? But then after a while, that grape juice begins to ferment and it becomes alcoholic. Right? And that's the old wine. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that you don't put new wine into old wineskins. There's a reason for that. And that's because when you put that new wine in a new wineskin, the skin is pliable, it's flexible. And so as that new wine begins to ferment, it creates gases and it expands. But because that wineskin is new, it's flexible. But once that process has gone through and then it's stretched out and it's turned into alcohol, now the sugars coat the inside of that wineskin, plus the outside, because it's in the environment, it starts to get harder. And now, if you take all of that old wine out, but you put new wine into that hard wineskin, and it goes through that expansion process, what's going to happen? The skin is going to break, and the wine is going to spill out, right? And so Jesus says, you don't put new wine into old wineskins. But... Jesus wasn't talking about literal wine. He was talking about His teaching and His doctrine. And He was essentially saying that you can't put My teaching, My doctrine into an old wineskin. Jesus couldn't go to the Pharisees and teach them about what the Messiah should be because they already had their mind made up. They already had these preconceived notions and ideas of what the Messiah should be. And so Jesus said, I can't put my teaching into them. And that's why Jesus had to go and He had to get these fishermen and this tax collector and these others. He had to get people who maybe they had their preconceived ideas of what the Messiah was, but they were still pliable enough that Jesus could teach them and they could grow in the faith and grow in the truth. So do you understand what that means then? You don't put new teaching into someone who's already made up their mind what something should be. They're not going to listen. They're not going to accept it. They're just going to get mad like the Pharisees did, right? And so that's exactly what is represented here in Revelation chapter 17 when it talks about this wine in this cup of the woman in Babylon. And so this is the teaching or the doctrines of this corrupt church. Are you with me? All right. So notice what it says in Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, the nations are deranged. 
So what is this saying? Babylon means mixing, right? And you'll remember that over that 1,260 years of the reign of this corrupt church, that truth was cast to the ground and error is mixed in with truth and now this doctrine is being taught to people and they're getting drunk, they're deranged because they're following this teaching of this corrupt church. Does that make sense? Now, let me, uh, let me tell you a little story here. There was a university that had a few college students that were always partying and drinking, and they always thought that when they started to get drunk, that they always had these deeper philosophical conversations. And so they started thinking, you know, it's really better to drink because you're so much smarter And you're able to solve all of the world's problems. And everything is just better, right? And so there's a couple of professors who heard about this thinking. And they said, wow, that sounds very interesting. Why don't we conduct an experiment? Why don't we uh, see if all of this is true? And so they recommended to these students, well, I'll tell you what. We'll buy you the beer and you guys can have your party but you let us tape it. Would you let us do that? Well, these were college students, right? Free beer? Sure, we'll do that. And so they had their party, and pretty soon they got a little loose, and they started thinking that they were getting into these really deep conversations, and they were solving all of the problems of the world, and it was really philosophical, it was really deep. And then when the party was over, after a couple of days of letting them sleep off their hangover, then the professors came back to them and they said, well, what do you think? Was it like you said? Were these deep, philosophical, all of life's problems solved? That kind of a thing? And they were like, oh yeah, it was amazing. It was great. You wouldn't believe it. And they said, okay, well, let's listen to the tape. And what do you think it was? It was gibberish, right? It was garbage. It was junk. But you could have never convinced them that they were wrong, right? And the same thing is true when it comes to drinking the wine of Babylon. When you are listening to the teachings of a corrupt church who has error mixed in with truth, and that sounds pretty good to you. And you like that. And now somebody comes along with the new wine the teaching of the pure truth, they don't want that, right? Because it's going to challenge you. It's going to cause you to have to make some decisions and changes in your life when the old wine says, oh no, all you got to do is just check the box and say, yeah, I'm a Christian, I love God, and you can continue on with everything that you've always been doing. And so here we see what's going on here. Now I'm just going to say to this, We have got to give a lot of credit to Satan. He is brilliant. Because if you're going to deceive God's people in the last days, how do you do it? You do it by mixing in a little bit of error with truth over thousands of years, and then pretty soon that error is being taught as truth. And it's a wine that is deranging people. It's confusing people. It's not the truth. And yet, everyone believes it to be the truth. And if you try to share with them the truth, they don't accept it. They would rather have the old wine than the new. 
I'd like you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 29. It's going to be page 815 in your seminar Bible. I want to show you how the Bible speaks about being drunk by the teachings of men. Isaiah 29, and notice what it says in verses 9 through 13. The Bible says, Pause and wonder. Blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. For the Lord has poured out on you the spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes, namely the prophets, and He has covered your heads, namely the seers. The whole vision has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed, which men delivered to you, one who is illiterate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I can't, for it's sealed. And then the book is delivered to one who is illiterate, saying, Read this, please. And he says, I am not literate. Therefore the Lord said, Inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from me, and their fear towards me is taught by the commandments of men. Now, catch what's being said here. It says that these people are drunk, but not with actual wine, right? But rather with the teachings and the doctrines of men. And rather than being taught the commandments of God, and rather following the commandments of God, they're following the commandments of men, and they're drunk on that, they're deranged. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 15, verse 3, why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? And so they were drunk in a sense. There was this confusion that they were receiving from drinking in this false teaching of the church, if you will. He goes on to say, but in vain they do worship Me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Friends, the golden cup of wine in this woman's hand represents the intoxication of false doctrine. And through her compromise with the world, her doctrine has been compromised. And in turn, she gives corrupted doctrine to the world, making them drunk. Notice what Alexander Hislop said in his book, The Two Babylons. Page 105. He says, To conciliate, that means just to appease the pagans, to nominal Christianity, Rome, pursuing its usual policy, took measures to get the Christian and pagan festivals amalgamated. That's just joined together. And to get paganism and Christianity now far sunk in idolatry in this, as in so many other things, to shake hands. Friends, that is the policy of Rome. Rome is political. She is more political than she is religious or spiritual. And it is more important to them to have people join together for peace and unity than it is for people to take a stand on the truth. Remember what Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Not because Jesus was trying to divide people, but because He would rather have us divided and standing for truth than to be united and compromise with error. Paul said, all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Why? Because if you take a stand for the truth, people are going to be against you. 
There may be some of you here that have been going through these meetings and you're sharing with others what you're hearing and all of a sudden people are saying, watch out, I wouldn't listen to them, right? They're a cult, they're turning you away from the truth. Because there's going to be division when you decide to take a stand for the truth. The reason that he said that is because the truth always requires you to take a stand. The truth is never in harmony with the world. And yet, that is exactly what is happening. The church was seeking harmony with the world and in doing so was corrupted and brought in this whole new doctrine that began to be passed along making those who imbibed in it drunk on its teachings. Church history says this, Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity as it existed in the Dark Ages might be termed baptized paganism. Right? Notice that quote there. Baptized paganism, right? I'd like you to notice another quote from History of the Christian Religion by J.A. Neander. He says, Such were those who without any real interest whatever in the concerns of religion, living half in paganism and half in the outward show of Christianity, composed the crowds that thronged the churches on the festivals of the Christians and the theaters on the festival of the pagans. What's he saying? He's saying that the exact same people that were going to church were the same people that were going to the pagan festivals. There was no longer a separation between the Christian and the rest of the world. Right? They were all of this mixing of truth and error was just causing this confusion and pretty soon every Christian just looks like the rest of the world. Now let me tell you why this is so dangerous. Imagine for a moment that you had a glass of pure 100% juice. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But let's just put one drop of cyanide in it. What do you think? Is it any good? No, it's going to kill you, right? And we are living in the days when the deception has gone out and error has been mixed with truth and people are being killed by it. Right? Because we don't have the truth. We're not living the truth. We're just baptized pagans. And so we have to be very careful. It always requires a measure of truth to make it palatable. If Satan came at you with 100% error, you would never buy into it, right? But by mixing a little bit of error in with truth over long periods of time, pretty soon it's being taught as truth and we don't even realize it and we're drunk on that and it's killing us. We don't even realize that we are caught up in the deception of these last days. Remember what the Bible said. That the whole world wanders after the beast, right? Back to the two Babylons. Babylon was the primal source from which all these systems of idolatry flowed. It all began with Babylon. This mixing of truth and error. In fact, that's exactly what happened to Rome. They just followed along right behind Babylon who was the center of image worship. In fact, here is a statue of St. Peter. 
But before that, it was actually a statue of Jupiter. But the church changed the name. They just brought paganism into the church. Here is a supposed statue of Mary and Jesus. But before that, it represented a Babylonian god and his mother, uh, Samarius and Tammuz. And so we just see this paganism being brought into the church and being taught as gospel truth. Babylon is also the center of the false teachings about death. There is all of this mixing that is happening during this period of the Dark Ages. Remember that truth was cast to the ground and this Antichrist prospered, right? And he brought in this system of error mixed with truth and this church is taking paganism and it's teaching it and the people are becoming intoxicated by it. It was the concept of the Babylonians that an immortal soul left the body at death and lived on. Therefore, the Babylonians established a system of gods and goddesses worshiping the spirit of those who supposedly lived on. And of course, the church began to establish the same thing. Praying to dead saints. Praying to Mary. Even giving her this goddess-like status Right? They're simply a part of paganism, things that are being brought into the church. But the Bible is very clear when it comes to the state of the dead, isn't it? We've talked about this already. In fact, we looked at this verse in Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5. It says, For the living know that they will die, but the dead know how much? Nothing. And they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. And so unless Mary was dead before Jesus died and was resurrected, and she was among those that were resurrected with Him, she's not in heaven. Right? And so it doesn't do any good to pray to Mary because she's in the grave. And so if you think you've had contact with Mary, what did we learn the other night? That it's just the spirit of demons performing signs, right? Notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15, It says, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. That anthropological dualism that we were talking about, that people believe that somehow the body and the soul are separate entities, that the soul goes on to live. That's paganism that was brought into the church. God alone has immortality. But the Bible says in the book of Romans, that those who receive the wrath of God are going to exchange the truth of God for a lie. Can you imagine that? Changing the truth of God for a lie? But that is exactly what is happening right now in the world today. It's happening right now among us. This mixture of truth and error that is confusing people today. Notice something that Justin Martyr said, one of the early church fathers. He died in 165 A.D. He said, If you have fallen in with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this truth of the resurrection, and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who say there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their souls, when they die, are taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians. 
This was in 165 A.D. They were still trying to keep this paganism out of the church at that point. But today, nobody even pays attention to that anymore, do they? Babylon was also the center of sun worship. Notice what James Brazier says in a book called The Worship of Nature. In ancient Babylonia, the sun was worshipped from immemorial antiquity. And I ask you the question, what day do you think they worshipped the sun on? Sunday, right? That is why Constantine, when he sought to gain the favor of the pagans, and he saw that the Christians were trying to separate themselves from the Jews, that he placed into law that Sunday would be the day in which the Christians were to worship and to rest. But notice what he calls it. This is out of History of the Christian Church. He said, on the venerable day of the sun, let the magistrates and people residing in the cities rest and let all of the workshops be closed. Notice that he doesn't say anything about Christ. He doesn't say anything about the Bible, but rather the venerable day of the sun. Right? And so he's trying to appease the pagans who were already worshiping on Sunday. And so he's trying to get all the Christians to worship on Sunday as well. And so there is this mixing of truth and error. Notice what the uh, Apostolic Creed says. O Lord Almighty, Thou hast created the world by Jesus Christ and hath appointed the Sabbath in memory thereof. In the days of the Apostle, they were trying very hard not to allow that apostasy in, right? And you see what they thought. The Sabbath was a memorial of creation, right? It was the day that God had set aside for us to worship Him corporately. It was to be kept by God's church throughout all of eternity. Notice what Father John O'Brien says in a book called The Faith of Millions. This is a Catholic publication. It is intended to prove the Catholic faith It was published in 1974 and it had the full approval of the Vatican. He says, But since Saturday, not Sunday, is specified in the Bible, isn't it curious that non-Catholics who profess to take their religion directly from the Bible and not from the church observe Sunday instead of Saturday? Yes, of course, it is inconsistent, but this change was made about 15 centuries before Protestantism was born, and by that time, the custom was universally observed. They have continued the custom, even though it rests upon the authority of the Catholic Church and not upon an explicit text in the Bible. That observance remains as a reminder of the what? Of the mother church from which the non-Catholic sects broke away like a boy running away from home but still carrying in his pocket a picture of his mother or a lock of her hair. This is what the Catholic Church says about themselves. We are the mother church, right? But remember what we read in Revelation chapter 17? That this church is mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots, and of the abominations of the earth. And so what we're seeing here is that this corrupt religious system who is called the mother of harlots spawns other churches that are harlots. Did you catch that? I want to show you this. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. 
this is going to be page 969 in your seminar Bible. And we're going to look at verses 31 through 34. Ezekiel 16, verse 31 says, You erected your shrine at the head of every road, and you rebuilt your high place in every street. Yet you were not like a harlot because you scorned payment. You're an adulterous wife who takes strangers instead of her husband. Men make payment to all harlots, but you made your payments to all your lovers and hired them to come to you from all around your harlotry. You are the opposite of other women in your harlotry because no one solicited you to be a harlot in that you gave payment, but no payment was given to you. Therefore, you are the opposite. The Lord is saying, hey, a harlot usually takes payment from her lovers, right? But in your case, you actually courted these and you yourself are the one that is committing fornication and unfaithfulness without even receiving payment for it. You're searching it out for yourself. And then notice what it says in verse 44. Indeed, everyone who quotes Proverbs will use this proverb against you. Like mother, like daughter. Now, we need to understand the context of of what's being said here in Ezekiel. This is God talking to Israel, right? Israel was continuously being unfaithful to God. And you see this happening over and over again throughout the Old Testament. And the first thing that happened after Solomon died was the kingdom was divided in half, right? There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. But the northern kingdom immediately apostatized. And now God is talking to Judah and He says, you're just like the northern kingdom. You're just like your mother. You do the same thing that your mother did, right? And so if we spiritualize that, God is talking about this corrupt system of this harlot mother who has harlot daughters. And who are the daughters? The daughters are the ones that are doing the same thing that the mother does, right? The ones who still hold tradition over the Bible. Notice what Pope John Paul II said in a radio address on May of 2001. He said it must always be clear when the expression sister churches is used in this proper sense that the one holy Catholic and apostolic universal church is not sister but mother of all particular churches. This is from a book called The Battle of the Spirits by Edward Reed, page 151 and 152. It's talking about Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. You know who that is? That was the last pope that just stepped down before the current pope came into office, right? Joseph Ratzinger. With the pope's approval and blessing, he released Dominus Azus, which claims that salvation is possible only in the Roman Catholic Church and that the other ecclesiastical communities are no longer to be referred to as sister churches. We are not sisters. Rome is the mother church. Friends, I am thankful that the Protestants took a stand to go on the Bible and the Bible only over tradition, but embracing the unbiblical counter-reformation theory of the secret rapture that was born out of Rome in an attempt to take the heat off of the papacy as the Antichrist is not pulling away from tradition. And I am thankful that Protestants don't pray to Mary 
but still embracing the theory of an immortal soul is not pulling away from the mother church. And I'm thankful that Protestants don't believe in purgatory, but still teaching in internal torment is not pulling away from the mother church. And I'm thankful that Protestants go by the Bible and the Bible only, but then clinging to Sunday over the direct fourth commandment of the law of God, I don't think that's pulling away from the mother church. Amen? And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be following a church that is continuing in the traditions of the harlot mother. We need to separate ourselves from those churches. I don't want to be a part of that group. I don't want to be considered a harlot daughter, right? Friends, this is what the picture of Babylon and the daughters is telling us. That we don't need to look to Palestine or any other events for the last days. We simply need to look at the doors of the church. The Bible speaks about Babylon and those teachings that come from Babylon still existing at the end of time. And I believe that God is doing something about it today. Amen? The light of truth would penetrate the darkness. The truth which we talked about, that was cast to the ground, that 1,260 years, would begin to be restored by God. Right? It would begin to climb out of obscurity. And so let's talk a minute about what happened through this time of the Dark Ages and this coming out and this Protestant Reformation. Right? The Waldensian Christians in the 1400s began to hide pages of the Bible, and they went and they shared the Bible with others, even though they were told by law that they couldn't do that. They were persecuted greatly for their efforts to share the Bible with the people during the times of the Dark Ages, but the Waldensians were coming out of that darkness. They were standing for the Bible over tradition. And then there was John Huss. John Huss emphasized obedience to God and began to pull away from the empty works of the Catholic Church. And then came Martin Luther who emphasized the grace of God instead of a system of salvation built on works. But the problem is that once Luther died, that many people just planted their stake, they threw out an anchor, and they said, we're Lutherans, and they went no further. Right? But what God intended is that as truth was being restored, that His church would follow along and would continue to grow and more and more in the truth. Then came Calvin. And Calvin emphasized personal growth and and the importance of Christian growth. And yet many people clung to the teachings of Calvin and called themselves Calvinists, right? But there was still truth that God was trying to bring out during those dark ages. They were immersed in truth. And God couldn't bring it all out at once. Remember what Jesus said to the disciples? I have more to teach you but you can't handle it, right? God couldn't bring out all of this truth all at one time. He had to bring it out 
a little bit by a little bit. And his intention was that people would continue to grow as he was revealing this truth. But people stopped and refused to go any further. And so more and more churches began to develop. And so then the Anabaptists realized that baptism was full immersion. And they were the forerunners of the Baptist church. And then John Wesley emphasized holiness. And it wasn't long before the Methodist church came along, right? And as a general rule the majority of those who are in one of those faith-based organizations, they eventually lose the spirit of growth and investigation. You know, I've talked to people and I say, hey, let's study the Bible. And they say, oh, I already have a church. I say, that's great. Does your church teach the Bible? Yeah, but I'm good, right? I'm comfortable with what my church teaches. But there's still more truth, more growth that God wants us to go through. Like the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? I love for them to come to my house. Yeah, come on in. Let's study the Bible together, right? The truth can always stand the test of investigation. We should never be afraid to study with someone, right? Because there may be more truth that we haven't seen yet, amen? And I'm sure that's why you're all here. Because we want to know the truth, don't we? The truth is what sets us free. And the the reason that we need to do that is because God has to have an open channel in order for Him to reveal the truth to us. If you close that door that many people do and say, oh, nope, I'm a Lutheran, I can't do that, right? then we are going to find ourselves in a very dangerous place. Paul said, if a man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet that he ought to. The Bible says that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. And we can't afford to be so comfortable in our religion or in our church that we are not willing to follow the truth. You remember the story of Father Abraham, the father of the faithful, God called him to come out of his comfort zone. He said, leave your country, leave your family, and go to a place that I will show you. Right? Abraham didn't even really know what that meant. He didn't even know where he was going. But he said, I have to follow the Lord. I have to follow the truth. And I believe that every time that God points to some character trait or some sin, or some belief system, or whatever it is, and we are out of harmony with Him, that it requires us to come out of our comfort zone. We've got to take a step of faith. We might say, Lord, I don't know where this is going, but I'm following You. Amen? And I think that's what this prophecy of Babylon is telling us. The reality is that people have some very strange reasons for choosing the church that they go to. Here's some of the top reasons. Well, it's the church my parents went to. It's good to have family, right? It's good to go to the church that the family was in. It's close to my house. Well, that's certainly convenient. It's the church where all the influential people go. Well, the preacher, he's charismatic and handsome. (laughs) What do you think? You think that's a good reason to choose a church? 
because he's handsome or he's a good speaker? No. They have a good children's program. Friends, it's good to have a good children's program. But do we want that program based on the truth? Or do we want to give them the wine of Babylon? They have a nice looking building. They have a good music program. Oh, the people are so loving there. But friends, you do not find truth by a church. The Catholic Church lives that fallacy. Right? You don't find truth by a church. You find truth by the Word of God. Amen? But here is the key. You find the church by the truth. You want to go to a church that is teaching all of the truth that is available for your time. Amen? Remember what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. The church is to be the pillar and ground of truth. And the devil knows that he can get every one of us to go to church. As long as it's a church that is built and based on the doctrines and the teachings of men rather than the teachings of God, right? The only safety is to build upon the rock of Jesus Christ, the teachings of Jesus Christ, the words of Jesus Christ. I heard a story about a man who was asked, what does your church believe? And he said, well, we believe what our pastor believes. And they said, oh, that's good. What does your pastor believe? Well, he believes what we believe. Well, what do you and your pastor believe? Well, we all believe alike. Or how about the guy who was asked, what do you believe? And he said, go ask my wife. Right? (laughs) Friends, we cannot afford to allow someone else to do our thinking for us. No matter how convenient or how comfortable or how it seems appealing to our feelings, we can't go by our feelings in these last days. Amen? We have got to go by the concrete weight of Scripture and faith in that Scripture. We've got to follow the truth. The Bible says in the last days, that they will receive not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. John 17, 17, Jesus said, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Friends, it's not enough to say that you love the truth. But we must allow ourselves to be sanctified by it. To be changed by the truth, right? Now, let me remind you that the Bible says that through most of church history that there would be this great falling away, this great apostasy, and the truth would be cast to the ground and error would prosper. But in Revelation chapter 14, just before the coming of Jesus, we see these three messages that are going out to the world. We talked about the first one last night, and that is that the hour of His judgment has come. We're already living in that time of judgment. They're already uh, judging the dead. They've been doing it since 1844. And I believe that they are very soon going to get to the living. And the end of the world will come. And then it talks about Babylon. This system of confused truth and error mixed together. And truth being cast to the ground, and error being elevated. And what is it that causes Babylon to fall? When the truth begins to be restored, right? 
And that is exactly what we're seeing happening today. And there are various churches and faith systems that are upholding the doctrines of the mother church, like Sunday sacredness, immortality of the soul, the secret rapture, eternal torment, just to name a few. And all of these things are being exposed by the truth of God's Word in these last days. And so what is God doing for us today? He is calling us out of Babylon. Revelation chapter 18, verse 4 says, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. God is calling His people away from the error and the confusion of these organizations where error is proclaimed as truth. Friends, Babylon is not to be reformed. That harlot church does not change. And the world is once again going to come under that umbrella of the Catholic church. And persecution is going to come again. And some people, people feel that it might just be easier to stay in your comfort zone. But friends, if you are not able to make a stand for the truth today, then how are you going to do it when things get really hard? How are you going to do it when you're not able to buy or sell? Today is the day that we have to come out of that system of error. Jesus said, walk in the light unless darkness overtake you. And that's going to be that strong delusion that we've already talked about. Friends, I know that some of you are weighing the truth that you've heard here and weighing what it means to you. But my advice to you is just do what Abraham did. Follow God. Follow the truth and and leave the consequences to Him. Because Jesus said, count the cost. There are costs associated with following the truth. And there are also costs associated with not following the truth. So if we're just staying in our churches because we're comfortable there, or because the people are lovely or friendly or our family, and we're not following the truth, what's it going to cost us? Notice what Revelation 18 verse 14 says. The fruit that your soul longed for has gone from you. And all of the things that are rich and splendid have gone from you. And you shall find them no more at all. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Babylon and those who teach her errors are going to sway the masses. The Bible tells us that. The whole world wondered after the beast. But in the end, complacency and compromise are going to come to nothing while the truth and those who follow it are going to be rewarded by the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the Bible is telling us, come out of those corrupt systems. Come out of her, my people. Do not follow tradition. Do not follow custom. Only those who follow the truth are going to be safe in the arms of Jesus. The One who is the truth. And so tonight, friends, I want to do something that I haven't done yet in these meetings. And that is, I want to make an appeal to you that if you want to stand for the truth and you want to come out of that corrupt system 
of a corrupt mother church and harlot daughters, and you want to make a stand for Jesus, then I'm going to ask you to stand up right now and come up here with me and you make a stand for Jesus. Come, now. What do you think? Is Jesus calling you? Is he, is he got you here? Do you have a divine appointment? Are you coming to the truth? Do you want to follow the truth? Or do you want to stay where you're at? Friends, the choice is yours. Please, come right here with me. Amen. Please, come up here and make that stand for Jesus. What do you think, friends? Are you going to stay in that corrupt system? Or do you see here tonight that there's a truth that you need to follow? What are you going to do? I don't think that anyone is here by accident. But everyone has been called here by Jesus. And today is the day for you to make a choice to take that stand and say, yes, Lord, I'm standing for the truth. I'm standing for you. Friends, is that your choice? I'm going to ask you one more time to make that choice and come up here with us. Remember that everyone that Jesus called, He called publicly. He said, if you're ashamed of me before men, then I will be ashamed of you before my Father and the angels of heaven. But if you are not ashamed of me, then I will not be ashamed of you. Friends, are you willing to take that stand today? Last opportunity I'm going to give you. I want to thank each and every one of you that are here with me. Taking that stand for Jesus. Following the truth. Saying, yes, the truth is what's going to set me free. Let's pray. Oh, loving Father, I thank You for everyone here tonight. And Lord, I know You're working on every heart. And there may be some who, Lord, they feel that tug of the Spirit of God, but they've just been afraid to stand up, to, to make that stand. And Lord, we lift them up before You. We pray that You would strengthen them and encourage them and help them to come out of Babylon. Help them to take the stand for the truth. And Lord, I pray for everyone that's up here with me. Lord, that You would bless each one because they've been willing to take a stand for You, Lord, that You would give them the power to walk with You, to walk in the light so that darkness won't overtake them. And Lord, that You would prepare them for the coming of Jesus. Lord, we know the time is short. And we know that You are doing a powerful work here. And we are so grateful and thankful that You have given us yet another opportunity to surrender our hearts to You. And Father, I pray that You would continue the work that You have begun in each one of us. That You would bring it to completion. That You would bring us to that place where we would be just like Jesus. Lord, help us to walk in the truth. Help us to not be swayed by the deceptions of that wine of Babylon. Lord, I know that it's hard to take the new wine when we've had that old wine for so long. But Lord, our prayer is that You would give us a taste for the truth. Help us to fall in love with the truth. 
Because if we do, we're falling in love with You. And we pray and ask that You would take us to heaven when You come. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.